0: Good evening. Well, welcome those of you who are joining us uh, right now from an off-site campus or on the internet, wherever you happen to be. We're glad you're along. Hope you can put up with a hat for just one more week. How about that? My head's healing up. It's all good. Just little tiny scabs. And uh, this week I'll, I'll be brave enough to get a haircut so it all is the same. So it's m- more about my vanity than it is anything else uh, this week. But uh, somebody asked me, is it wrong to wear hats in church? Well, there's more about covering your head than there is uncovering it, actually. And so anyway, it's, it's all right. Don't worry about it. Okay, so <laughs> let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been, like, really, really frustrated trying to explain a new concept to somebody and the person that you're trying to explain it to just doesn't get it? You ever been there? Some of you are shaking your heads, it happened in the car on the way here. <laughs> You know, tonight, yeah. Maybe it's a parent, you know, maybe it's a whole potty training thing, you know, you're trying to explain the concept, they're not getting it, and you get frustrated. Or maybe it's, you know, a teenager, and you, you know, spring for the car with a stick shift rather than an automatic transmission, and you're trying to teach them to drive, and they're just not getting it, and you're frustrated with that. Or it could be like my algebra teachers, when I was in school, trying to explain the principles of algebra to me, and I wasn't getting it. Or you might just be a woman trying to explain anything to a man. And uh, in I fact, I found a Facebook site this week. This week, I was just Googling stuff on the internet, and I found a Facebook site uh, that, that's titled, the, the page is actually titled, Men, They Just Don't Get It. Men, They Just Don't Get It. There's actually a site out there that says that. And, and here's, the, here's kind of the explanation of the site. It said, here's all you need to know about men and women. Men are stupid. Women are crazy. And the reason women are crazy is because men are stupid. <laughs> I thought, there is one frustrated woman there. There really is. But you know, she had a whole bunch of people that liked her sight, so I, I don't know I don't know what's up with that. Well, you know, we're in a series uh, right now where we're studying Galatians. I hope you're kind of enjoying reading through Galatians a little bit, uh, kind of tracking with us uh, as we go. And this week what I want to do is I want to cover the entire a third chapter of Galatians. And we'll kind of look at the first few verses and then pull in other verses that kind of relate to that. But in chapter 3 of Galatians, Paul is frustrated. I mean, you can tell it. He's frustrated with the Galatians church because they just aren't getting it. He calls them foolish Galatians twice. You foolish Galatians. They aren't getting it. There are false teachers that are have come in after Paul has kind of you know led these people to the Lord and made a good foundation of the gospel and false teachers have come in and he says that they're teaching a, another gospel and it's not really a gospel at all and we studied that in chapter 1 they're teaching that it takes more than faith in Jesus to be justified before God to to stand before God and and uh, ha- have a right or, or, or a reason to be justified before God. They're saying, you know what? It's not just faith in Jesus. You're, they were saying that the, the faith has to be supplemented by works of the law. Uh, trusting in what Christ did for you has to be supplemented by what you actually do for Christ, for God. It's God's work plus your works equals justification. In fact, they said it was faith plus circumcision in chapter 1, that you, you've got to be circumcised, one of the steps of the law. Or, or you, uh, in, in chapter 2, they, they talked about dietary laws, that there are certain dietary laws that if you're going to be a Christian, you've got to obey because it's the law. And then in chapter 4, they talk about keeping of holy days, certain days that are holy according to the law. And Paul's just frustrated with them, saying, you don't get it. You're foolish, you know. Jesus died for you. You aren't getting the power of the gospel. So he's really, really frustrated. And he says, if you could just get it, it would transform your lives. And so I I thought uh, this weekend in studying it that we'd take a real close look at what they weren't getting and then ourselves, how does it apply to us? Again, if Paul was to come to your house or he was to come to this church, What would he say to you? Greg, I love you, but you're foolish. You're frustrating me. You're not getting it. There's a whole lot more to the power of the gospel that you're not getting because you're just adding all kinds of stuff to it. What would he say? And so that's kind of the background and where we are. What I want to do is I want to read the first five verses of chapter 13, and then we'll take a look at what it is he's frustrated about, and then we'll apply... I think solutions to our lives. And I really hope, listen, this is what's going to happen tonight. I I really feel like we're going to dig deep into some foundational doctrines. Uh, We might even use two or three words that theologians use and have used down through the years. But I think it's going to come to, I I think it's going to bring some things alive in us. And it's my prayer that we understand the gospel more than we've ever understood the power of the gospel as we walk out of here this weekend. It's going to change the way that we live. I really, really, really believe that's going to happen. So dig in, okay? This is not a white message. Dig in, let's dig deep, and let's get what God has for us. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 1 says this, O foolish Galatians, what magician has cast an evil spell on you? For you used to see the meaning of Jesus Christ's death as clearly as though I had shown you a signboard with a picture of Christ dying on the cross. I want you to get that picture. He says, Who's, Who messed with your mind? And he's talking about false teachers. But he said, You used to understand. You used to get the significance of the meaning of the death of Christ as if I'd put it on a billboard. As if I'd, I'd, I'd put it up in a big picture. You got it. You knew it. And what happened to you? He goes on. Next verse. Let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by keeping the law? Of course not. For the Holy Spirit came upon you only after you believed the message that you heard about Christ. Have you lost your senses? After starting your Christian lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort. You have suffered so much for the good news. Surely it was not in vain, was it? Are you now going to just throw it all away? I ask you again. Does God give you the Holy Spirit and work miracles among you because you obey the law of Moses? Of course not. It's because you believe the message that you heard about Christ. So, so, so what weren't they getting? What weren't they getting? They weren't getting the power of the gospel. They didn't understand what Jesus had done for them. Now, three theological words that we're going to kind of toy with, and I'll just give them barely. We may follow up on the city with some more in-depth stuff on it. But the first one is justification, justification. The second one is sanctification. And the third one is glorification. Those are three theological terms that you're going to, you know, hey, check it off your list. You're going to know what they are by the time that you leave here this weekend. But hopefully you'll know more than that. Hopefully you'll be changed from the inside out in kind of your understanding of how God works with us. So I want to talk about the power of the gospel, those three words, three concepts. The first concept, in theological term justification, is this. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. This is what Jesus' death did for us. We have been saved from the penalty of sin, and that's the theological term justification. In fact, Galatians 3 and verse 13, Paul says this. Kind of, he, he, those first five verses are kind of the framework for everything, and then he goes back and he refers back to them several times during the chapter. And that's what we're going to do. In verse 13 he says, But Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. Now, if we really understood what that said, when I read it, there would have been a cheer that would have gone out here in this auditorium in the campuses. We would have probably heard Ermo from here, okay? If we really understood the significance of what that means. I mean, for years... I didn't understand it. Preachers would say, we've been redeemed from the curse of the law. Yeah, I'm supposed to get excited about that. I don't know what it means. I'm not Jewish. I mean, isn't the law kind of a Jewish thing? What is the curse of the law? You know, if you go back to God's interaction uh, with man and his covenant with man, kind of, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, I think, with Abraham, God came to Abraham and he said, you know what? I want to make a covenant with you. I want to be your God. You will be my people. And here's what I'm going to promise you. I'm going to promise you that I'm going to bless you. And I'm I'm going to bless you not just so that you'll be blessed, but so that you'll be a blessing to all nations and all people. In fact, you're going to be a picture. My relationship with you is going to be a picture of who I am so that other nations will go, that's the one true God. He said, I'm going to multiply you. Remember, Abraham didn't have any kids. He said, I'm going to multiply you, and through your seed, um, uh, there's going to become multiple nations, and I'm going to bless all nations through you. So that was the covenant, and that was sealed by circumcision. We talked about that the first week. And then for about 400 years, that kind of held up. And then 400-some years later, God's people, Israel, are now under... Egyptian captivity, and it's kind of kind of like it's dormant inside. Where is God? Where are you now? And God chooses Moses. Remember, and, and uh, Israel uh, gets out of Egypt. A uh, whole number of plagues come on Egypt, and finally they let them go, and and they're headed for the promised land, and and they get get by this mountain. And uh, God says, Mo, I want you to come up. I want to talk to you. And what Moses, or what God does is he kind of renews the covenant that began with Abraham with Moses. He said, you know what? What I said to Mo, Abraham, you're now going to see a fulfillment of that. I am going to be your God. You are going to be my people. And I'm going to ratify the covenant. And then you remember what he did because you've seen the movie is he gave him the, the 10 commandments of which I have five of them right here. Okay, I have five of them right here on this. Now, what were the commandments about? And there were actually more than 10. There was a whole, whole passel, 600 and some odd commandments. But what were they about? Why were all of these, there there were these commandments? These were the laws of the kingdom. God said, I will be your king. It was never God's will that they have another king. He was going to be their king. These are the laws of the land. These laws tell how you relate to me how you relate to one another, how you relate to foreigners in the land, how you treat your animals, how you treat the land that I'm going to give you. I mean, laws for everything. You just go look at the Levitical laws. I mean, it's really a blessing to to read through all of those things. Actually, it is because you get a picture of perfection. You get a picture of how God really wants us to treat one another. If you really dig down in there, I mean, there is so much equality and so much good stuff because the kingdom of God is perfect. He says, I want you to live in righteousness, rightly before me and before one another. And here are the laws of the the kingdom, the laws of the land. Okay, you got that? And so he says, now they're so important. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to illustrate to you, God says to Moses, how important it is because you've got to keep these. If you're going to be, if I'm going to be your God, you've got to keep these so that people get an accurate representation of who I am. He says, here's what I'm going to do. If you will keep the laws, I will bless you. I will pronounce blessings on you. But if you don't keep the law, I'm going to pronounce curses on you, and you're going to walk under a curse. So it's your choice. You keep the laws, you will be blessed. You don't keep the laws, you'll be cursed. And he said, so that everybody gets it. And this is really interesting. In Deuteronomy 27 and 28, he says, I'm going to do like, a, like this, this giant kind of play on this so that you'll, you'll get it. He says, I want half of the tribes of Israel, six tribes, all, you know, several hundred thousand people. I want you to go up this mountain up here there, standing in a valley of Shechem. I've actually been in that valley, and those of you who are going to go to Israel with, with us this year will we'll go to that valley. On one side is a mountain, on another, another side is a mountain. He says, I want half of you to go, and I didn't have a mountain, but I had a ladder. And, and he, he said, I want half of you to go up on that mountain, and that is going to be the Mount of Blessing, okay? And what I want you to do is I want you to take the law, I want you to write it all down, and then I, and, and, and I want you to take the blessings, and I'm going to give you the blessings. And here's what I want you to do. I want you all to be up on the mountain, a blessing, and I want you to read out. Can you imagine several hundred thousand people reading out together the blessings of the Lord? Things like, if you are attacked, I will, pro- I will protect you. Your enemy will come in from one direction, but they will leave from seven directions. I will bless you in everything that you do. Everywhere you go, you're going to be blessed. Any work that you do is going to be blessed. You will never need to owe anybody anything. You will be the lender, not the borrower. You will be the head and not the tail. If you obey the Lord, every part of your life will be blessed. And when you die, you'll be with me forever. The blessing of the law. And then he said, all right, here's what I want to do. I want the other six tribes to go up the other mountain. I don't have a mountain. Did I mention that? I have a ladder. This is the ladder of curses. And so he says, I want the other six tribes to go up this mountain. And and, and I want several hundred thousand of you, I want you just to yell out the curses if you don't obey the law. If you disobey the law, the Lord says... I will send disease among you. You will have fever. You will have inflammation. There will be scorching heat and drought. These terrible things will follow you, not just one day, two days, three days, five days, but until you die your enemies will defeat you you will come in from one direction and you will flee from seven directions they will eat your wild animals will eat your dead bodies because there will be no one left to chase them away the lord will make you blind he will make you mad and you will panic as you grope around in the darkness you will fail at every single thing You do. You will be robbed and oppressed and nobody will care. You will live your life in doubt. Every day and night will be full of fear with no hope that it ever gets better. If you refuse to obey God, all of these curses will find you. And in death, you will be separated from God forever. He's telling you how serious it is to keep the law. Pretty serious stuff. Would you agree? Now, the truth is they weren't able to keep it. They'd try real hard, and they'd fail. And he even made provisions for failure in the law. There was a whole, you know, intricate system of sacrificing stuff and and doing certain prayers and all this kind of stuff for when you failed. And it was so complicated. And what people would do is they'd keep it for a while, and then they would quit keeping it and quit making repentance for their sin, and they would find themselves under curses. Things would be hard for them. You read this story in the Old Testament, and you find it, over and over and over again. They would be under the curse of the law. Now, how much of the law do I have to break in order to be under a curse? How how, how many of the 600, how many ever uh, laws that there are? how, How many do I have to break to be under the curse? Well, in Galatians 3 and verse 10, Paul says this, But those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under his curse. For the scriptures say, cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all, say all together, all these commands that are written in God's book of the law. So if they broke even one of them, they were under a curse. Why is that important to me? Um, Have you ever... Maybe you've thought this or you've known somebody that did. Uh, Heard heard somebody say, uh, when they're thinking about death, and we don't like to think about death often. Usually we do with the death of a celebrity recently. um, Whitney Houston made us kind of introspective about some things, especially those of us that maybe grew up with some of her music. Or maybe there's a, a loved one that you go to a funeral or they're facing death and so you think about it. And you think, uh, you know, most people believe in the afterlife. In America, there are very few people that don't believe that there's anything. And so you ask, um, you know, who's God going to let in heaven? I mean, how do you know you're going to heaven? Well, um, I'm trusting that I've lived a pretty good life. I've made some mistakes, but I don't think it's anything bad enough to keep me out of God's presence. Now, where's the fallacy of that? The fallacy of that is that how many breakages of the law does it take to be under the curse? One. So good enough is, or or close is, is, is great in horseshoes and hand grenades, but it doesn't work so well when you're talking about your eternal destiny because we're talking about righteousness here. We're talking about, and you say, well, that's not fair. Who are you to say that the God of the universe is unfair? Okay. So, so when you live uh, and say, uh, you know, I'm pretty good. I'm doing the best I can. And hopefully that's good enough. For one thing, that's a kind of a shaky place to kind of find yourself. But secondly, um, it puts us under curse. It's the only place you can be because you are depending on your ability to fulfill the law of God, whether you're a Jew or not. The law of God, the laws of God in the world, and you're just not good at it. None of us are. In fact, Deuteronomy 29 and verse 19 says, let none of those who hear the warnings of this curse consider themselves immune, thinking I'm safe even though I'm walking in my own stubborn way. This would lead to utter ruin. Do you know anybody like that? He says, be careful. Galatians 3.22, Paul says, the scriptures have declared that we are all prisoners of sin. It's not good news. We're prisoners of sin. So the only way to receive God's promise, he says, is to believe in Jesus Christ. So my question is, back to the very first scripture, how does Christ redeem us from the curse of the law. If we know what the curse of the law is, we understand the difference between cursing and blessing in the law. How does the death of Christ redeem us from the curse of the law? The second part of of, of verse 13. Take a look at it on your outline sheet. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in the scriptures, cursed is everyone who hung on a tree i want you to see this you, you need to get this because this is you and this is me here's what it says it says that we all live under the law and we all fail and because of that we're under a curse we're under a curse but it says jesus took the curse off of the mountain and he took it on the cross He became a curse. He paid the penalty for the curse so that you and I no longer live under the curse of the law. If we don't live under the curse of the law because we have faith in Jesus, we say, you know, I believe that Jesus died for my sin. He paid the penalty for my sin. If we don't live under the curse of the law, what do we live under? blessings. Let me me give you one more. Let me give you one more. I love this verse. In fact, this verse is kind of the primary verse of why we have crosses that we go and we nail things to or pin things to at every campus. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 14, it says not only did he do this, he took us out from underneath the curse, but he canceled the record that was contained or contained the charges against us. He took it and destroyed it by nailing it to Christ's cross. See, there's a record somewhere of everything you've done and every wrong thing you've done. In fact, I asked the Lord if I could use, if I could see mine. And so I've got mine on a card right here. There's about 10 things excessive use of technology, failure to complete home improvement projects. Um, over-purchasing of man bags, um, not answering your assistant's emails. Yeah, I know who did this, okay? <clears throat> and then I asked him if I could see one of yours. And I won't say which one it is, but I, he let me use it. And um, not purchasing multiple copies of Irreverent. Um, there's just a few things. <laughs> That's an old one, isn't it? <laughs> Pretty funny though, but here's, here's, so here's what Jesus did. And I want you to see this. It's the record of your sin, the record of my sin. He went to the cross and uh, he nailed it to the cross. Done. Paid for. The record of your sin is gone. And it's magic ink because it's your future sins too. It's 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 everything that you've ever done or you're gonna do, was paid for at the cross with Jesus' death, and he took all of the curses of the law upon himself. He said, Father, I'll receive the curses of the law instead of Greg. And so and, and so and so now what do I live under? I live under the blessing. I live under the blessing. Do you get the good news of the gospel? You know what? You ought to be claiming. You ought to be going back, and you ought to be claiming. Well, you're not going to believe this, so I'm going to. I'm going to read it right here. In in verse. Um, well, even before I get there, we're not going to finish this message. Okay, it's not going to happen. Because uh, there's just too many good things, but we'll get as far as we can. So, what was the? We get a new. We get a new set of rules. Remember, these were the rules of the covenant. Well, there's a new set of rules of the new covenant that with Jesus. Guess where they are? They're written in our hearts, and they're fairly easy because it's this Matthew seven twelve. Do for others as you would have them do for you. This is a summary that all that is taught in the law and the prophets. It's the law of love. Jesus said, love one another. Love your neighbor. Love your friends. Love those in the community. Love those who hate you. It is the law of love. That's the law. Now, what was the purpose of the old law? It was to show us how guilty we are. In fact, Colossians 3.19 says, well, then why was the law given? It was given to show people how guilty they are. But this system of law was only to last until the coming of the child to whom God's promises was made. You know, it shows us. Somebody says, I'm pretty good. Oh, really? Let me get the law out and let's see how you're doing. Let's just do the top 10. Okay, you ever told a lie? You ever lusted? Don't put your hands up. Ever lusted (laughs) after anybody who you're not married to? I mean, just a couple of them, we got all of you. So so, so the law shows us how guilty we are. We need a Savior. And it also shows us how good God is. Verse 24 of Galatians 3 says, let me put it another way. The law was our guardian and teacher to lead us until Christ came. So now, through faith in Christ, we are made right with God. And then verse 29, last verse of the chapter says this. Let me put it another way. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs. And now all of the promises that God gave to him belong to you. The promises of Abraham, the first covenant, that you would be a blessing. The blessings of the second covenant or the Mosaic covenant are yours. It would be right for you to go back and read in Deuteronomy 28, the blessings that come with the law. And then it would be right for you to claim them and to tell yourself when, when the enemy comes to you and says, you know what, you're a failure. Or somebody comes to you and says, you'll never be able to do it. No, that's what the curse said. I'm not under the curse. I'm under the favor of the Lord. I am blessed in my coming in and blessed in my going out. I am the head and not the tail. That's what God says about you. And that's what Jesus Christ purchased for you on the cross. That's why we ought to rejoice in the gospel every day. And when we understand it, we'll have a better relationship with God. We'll have a better relationship with other people. And we'll have a better relationship with ourselves. That's a good time to say amen. Would you agree with me? Amen the gospel. And you know what? That's not even all of the good news. All that was talking about is that Christ's death, the gospel, saved us from the penalty of sin. And that's uh, justification. Here's the second concept. We'll try to get through this one. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin. And that's the concept of sanctification. Anybody have any challenge with sin since you've become a believer at all? A little bit. Say, well, I thought Jesus dealt with it. Jesus dealt with the penalty. He dealt with the curse. You're now under a blessing. The record of your sin has been nailed to the cross. But now you still have to live. You're still a human being. In fact, you will deal with the power of sin until the day that you achieve room temperature. Okay? Did you get what I'm talking about there? And so, but we are being saved from it. Believers not only have forgiveness of sin, but we also have the living presence of God within them. Look at what he says in verse two of that chapter. He says, let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by keeping the law? Of course not. The Holy Spirit came upon you after you believed the message that you heard about Christ. See, Christianity isn't just about changing your beliefs and changing your status before God. Christianity, becoming a Christian involves the coming of God himself, God's Holy Spirit, to live in you and to work inside of you. When you receive Jesus, his Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you, and he begins the change process. I remember one time my family lived on a, on a street, uh, fairly nice houses, and uh, one, one family moved out of their house, and nobody ever moved into it, and it got run down. I mean, it really got run down. The weeds started to grow up. The paint peeled. There were never any lights in there. It was a blight to the neighborhood. Everybody complained about the fact that that house was driving down the values in the neighborhood until finally one day somebody moved in. And when somebody moved in, things started to change. It didn't happen overnight. I mean, first they, you know, mowed the bigger weeds and Then they kind of pulled up some stuff. Then they made some definition to flower beds. And you'd see light bulbs changing and going on. Ultimately, they painted the place. Then they put flowers in. And finally, I mean, it looked like a great place, but it didn't happen right away. But there was evidence of life the moment that somebody moved in. And in the same way, when the Holy Spirit comes in you, there is evidence of of life. Things begin to change. Does it happen all at once? No, but it happens because the power of God begins to change us from the inside out. What's the evidence of a spirit-filled life? We're all to live spirit-filled lives. What's the evidence? Let me give you three things that I see that are evidences of a spirit-filled life. How do you know? Number one is the presence of the supernatural. Verse 5, he said, I ask you again, does God give you the Holy Spirit and work miracles among you because you obey the law of Moses? No, the answer is no. But here's the little point I want to make, is that he said, there is evidence of the Holy Spirit in your lives because there's the supernatural. He's, He's working miracles among you. If God is living inside of us, you would expect him to peek out occasionally, wouldn't you? That's kind of the new normal, the new normal that God by his Holy Spirit is living inside of his church. And so there ought to be evidence of the supernatural. There will be supernatural answers to prayer. One of the cool things that, about my job is that I get to hear a lot of those. You guys will email me or you know, text message or whatever and say, you wouldn't believe what happened when we were praying about such and such, whatever it happened. And occasionally there is the supernatural that just pops through in answers to prayer. Sometimes there are supernatural manifestations. I want to tell you about one, really cool. I just heard this one about two weeks ago. One of my friends who pastors a very, very large church in America And it is not what you would call um, a Pentecostal church or, as some churches are labeled, a charismatic church. It's kind of real conservative. Do you understand what I'm saying? So it's like nothing crazy goes on in this church. Every church needs a little something crazy, okay? Every church does. But that very little crazy goes on here. And so what he was doing is he was speaking in another country. And doing some some training and leading, he was speaking at this big event. and He was speaking through an interpreter, which is really a challenge. I I do it uh, periodically, occasionally. And uh, but anyway, he's speaking through an interpreter. It's going fine. And he comes down to the close where they're going to have like a salvation time. And he's speaking, and the interpreter isn't interpreting. And he's going, "What's going on with that? You know, all kind of when you're speaking, things can happen. You guys don't know it, but our lips are here, and our minds are somewhere else." what happened? Did the sound man blow it? You know What's going on? But he just plowed on through it. He just kept speaking. And he got to the end and somebody else came up and they had the altar call and hundreds, maybe thousands came to Christ. This is just recently. And he said, I don't want you telling a lot of people about this. So we got to keep this quiet. Okay. <laughs> but he said, I've I got to tell you what happened. He said, several people came up to me afterwards and they said, We didn't know that you knew. Or he asked somebody, he said, why did the interpreter quit? And he said, because you began to speak in the language of the people there. We didn't know you knew how to do that. He said, I don't know how to do that. But you know what happened? It was a manifestation of what you read about in the book of Acts. Through somebody who didn't particularly, had never been used to like speak in tongues or anything like that. But it was a supernatural manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And you can expect things like that from time to time. I know I've had over the last um, year, I mean, I, I probably didn't have anything for, for eight to ten years before the last year. And for some reason, I've, Debbie would confirm this, I've had four or five people either write to me or say to me, you know, I think I've got a prophetic word for you from God. And every prophetic word was almost exactly the same, telling me stuff that there's no way they had any idea about what I was thinking about or what was going on in my life. It was a supernatural manifestation of God in the church. Uh, in First Corinthians chapter 12, and verse 7, it says that a spiritual gift is given to each of us as a means of helping the entire church. To one person, the Spirit gives the ability to give wise advice. To another, he gives the gifts of special knowledge. The spirit gives special faith to one another. And to someone else, he gives the power to heal the sick. And he gives one person the power to perform miracles. And to another, the ability to prophesy. And he gives somebody else the ability to know whether it is really the spirit of God or another spirit that's speaking. And still another person is given the ability to speak in unknown languages. And another is given the ability to interpret what's being said. It is one and only Holy Spirit, who distributes these gifts, He alone decides which gift each person should have. It should be normal in the life of a a group of people who are full of God's Holy Spirit at various processes in their life that from time to time God would would do the supernatural through them. Now, let, let me say this. Believers don't chase signs. It gets weird when that happens. Signs follow believers. We just do normal stuff. We pray for one another. We love one another. We serve the community. And we do like my pastor friend did. You turn around and you go, what just happened there? Because God, by his Holy Spirit, is moving through us. And it won't be the same for everybody. But I think you can expect the supernatural uh, when you're living a spirit-filled life. Then the second evidence of a spirit-filled life is a deep assurance that God is our Father. Romans chapter 8 says, so you should not be like cowering, fearful slaves. You should behave instead like God's very own children adopted into his family, calling him Father, dear Father, for his Spirit, Holy Spirit speaks to us deep in our hearts and tells us that we are God's children. He said, when you're a believer and Jesus has paid the penalty for your sin and the curse of the law has been taken upon him, you oughtn't to act fearful. You should take your rightful position as children of the almighty God because the Holy Spirit gives witness inside of you and says, you know what? He's your father. He's your father. And so he gives witness to the the fact that we're children of God. And then the third evidence of the Holy Spirit is found in Galatians 5. And we'll deal with this whole thing in a couple of weeks. But it says the fruit of the Spirit is love, is love. And the more full that you get of God's Spirit, the more you're going to love people. See, I've said many times here, and I really believe it's a cornerstone of our ministry at Seacoast, is maturity is not measured by what you know. It's measured by who you love. And as you become more and more mature in God, and you become more and more mature as the Holy Spirit moves in everywhere, not just turning the lights on or cleaning the weeds, but moves in everywhere, and we yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit, then we become more and more and more loving. And so the power of the gospel is that he has saved us from the penalty of sin. He is saving us from the power of sin by the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's sanctification. The third one, and all I'm going to do is just let you fill in the blank here. Because you brought the preach right out of me in this whole thing just a few minutes ago. We will be saved from the presence of sin. And that's glorification. We will be. There is coming a day, gang, when there will be no presence of sin. You know, in the little church I grew up in, we used to talk about heaven a lot. We we sang songs about heaven, and we looked forward to heaven, and that was good. We ought to do it more here. We need to be thinking about. I got a sign in my office. I've told you guys about it before. That says, "Have you thought about heaven today?" You know, Paul says. Uh, don't just think about things below, but things above. Lift your eyes, lift your thoughts to things above. It gives you a perspective for, for what's going on here. Where we made a mistake back in our day is that we just thought, well, we're just gonna hang in until Jesus comes or we die and we're raptured. And God has more for us than just hanging in. In fact, here's his story. Here's the gospel story. And I'll close with this. The gospel story is a narrative. And the narrative says this, there was a creation. One day God created the heavens and the earth and he created him perfectly just as he wished and then there was a fall adam and eve knowingly sinned and disobeyed god as a result of the fall there was a curse and man was hopeless until there was a redemption jesus came and he died on the cross And because of his death, I now can have eternal life. I am free from the curse of the law. The record of my sins are nailed to the cross. There is a redemption. And there is also a restoration that's in process. God is restoring everything to himself. One of the reasons that the church is here is because your story mirrors his story. You were created one day in God's image. There was a fall. At some point, you ratified the fact that you're a sinner. Jesus Christ came, you received him, there was a redemption. And now there's a restoration going on within you, but it's not just within you, it's in the world, and God has a place for you in his worldwide restoration. There is a reason why you live in the neighborhood that you live. There's a reason why you were born when you were born. There's a reason why you work where you work because God needs you as a part of his plan of restoration. He uses you to bring love, to, to, to restore the things that are missing in the world. You are a part of the restoration Uh, process that god is doing i don't think we just hang in there until jesus comes i think we renew and we restore and through the power of the holy spirit we we are a part of restoring all the things that are good but never forget that there is coming a day that jesus will come back he is coming back and in that day sin will be obliterated and we will reign forever and ever and ever and ever and ever with him We will be glorified someday. That is good news. So church, how do you feel about the gospel? Is the gospel good news? Is it good news? I think that it is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you for the fact that Jesus died to save us from the penalty of sin. We are grateful for the fact that the Holy Spirit has come to live inside of us and is giving us power over sin. And I am so grateful for the fact that you are coming again someday to remove the very presence of sin from this world. God, I just pray that in the next few minutes that you would allow us to celebrate that, just to really celebrate that. When we sing, when we give worship to you, God, I just pray that it would well up from deep within, that it would, there would be an energy here that would be different than anything that we've had before as we just celebrate the gospel, what you've done for us. God, I pray that we would learn to live under the good news of the blessings of the Lord. And God, now just examine our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.